On the uh, screen up here, I put my uh, web address up there at the top so that if you, you want to download these handouts from online, I've got them on there. And hopefully we'll also eventually get the uh, sound files on there because I record these. And so as I'm working with that, uh, eventually they'll get there. Right now I'm trying to work on a, uh, perhaps a different arrangement on my uh, website and easier way to handle downloads and things of that nature. So I'll be praying about that, that I either get the right help or the right tool to get that done and get that uh, accomplished. And then uh, those will be more readily available. But that's where you can go to download those. Also, all the Psalms notes are on the same site there as well. So I wanted to make certain that you had that available and uh, knew where it was at. Last week, we left off in chapter 3 on uh, the last section of that chapter. And uh, we need to just wrap up just the last few things here because chapter 3 in that last section, especially from verse 16 through 22, uh, covers an area regarding oppression and death. And those are picked up in chapter 4 as we go on to chapter 4. So this handout you have today is for chapter 4 as we look at that. And we have to remember that this focus on death that occurred there at the end of chapter 3 really reflects a consistency in the way chapter 3 was arranged. Remember, it began with there's a time to be born and a time to die, or a time to give birth and a time to die. So it is consistent with the overall poem. And the problem in verse 21 of chapter 3 where it says, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. Remember our last discussion last week was, uh, what does the Old Testament have to say about life after death? And what are some of the evidences that would show that Solomon should have known there was a difference between man and animals? And as we look at this in verse 21, we have to keep in mind that in reality here, uh, the, the phraseology is saying it is possible that. When you say who knows, that phrase is the idea of who knows is it is possible that, but we don't know. In other words, Solomon is saying he does not know. But note that his concern, his question, is not so much about men as it, as it is about animals. Notice he says, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. And the reason we know that is that in chapter 12, verse 7, he makes a very clear statement. Then the dust will return to, to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Solomon's not confused about man. He just has a question about animals. And how many of you, perhaps, at times have thought, well, I wonder, since animals have the breath of life, since animals have a spirit, so to speak, will there be... Excuse me. Will there be animals in heaven? Will uh, what happens to animals? Their life forms. Do they just die? You know. Right. Well, that's could be living animals on Earth that time. But I'm certain that you've all had that question. If you haven't, your children have had that question when one of their animals has died, right? And what did you tell them? I won't ask you what you told them. <laughs> But if you, if you expressed that you weren't certain, you were probably being honest. And like Solomon, you were being honest. He was the same way. He's not confused about the spirit of man. 
He just has a question about the spirit of animals. So as we look at that, his uncertainty is involved in that. Now, one of the things that chapter 3 closes with then is this idea that we ought not fret over our lack of control over the way events happen in life. Sometimes we spend a lot of time fretting over that, worrying about it. But the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is we ought not to fret. And uh, we ought not fret over our inability to eradicate injustice. And he's going to pick up that and talk about it more in chapter 4. Here We'll cover in just a couple of minutes here. Uh, and what about our inability to avoid death? Well, we're all going to reach there. We're all going to be there sometime. And that's an issue that we're just going to have to face. Uh, one of the interesting things for my wife and I over the past few weeks is we've had a number of friends and acquaintances that have passed away. And uh, it seems like the older we get, the more of your acquaintances are, you know, are doing that. And you realize, you look in the mirror and you say, uh-huh, I thought they were old, I'm old too. In fact, I was on Facebook the other day looking at some of my uh, fellow high school graduates. And I told my wife, I says, boy, they're old. <laughs> uh-huh, right? So you know what she says? Do you know what a mirror is? <laughs> well, anyway. <laughs> so, you know, we ought to be careful. We, we ought not pour more effort into understanding our frustrating and uncontrollable circumstances. Sometimes we just try, we, we, we feel like we have to solve every single problem. And it's not, not always necessary that we do that. We also should not be spending our time comparing our lot in life with the lot of others. Speaking of old friends, just had a friend that the last time I saw him was 46 years ago. And he contacted me and he said, are you the same? And then described uh, the time that we spent together in Colorado at Pingree Park, the forestry camp of Colorado State University doing wildlife research way back in 1964, 46 years ago. And uh, he had found my name and he said his son had gone to Casper Army. He said, hey, I remember someone from there. And uh, so he contacted me, wanted to know if I was the same person. You know, we look at these things, and I look at him. He was describing to me what he's done and what he's uh, accomplished uh, since I last saw him. He graduated from Stanford in medicine as a medical doctor, has sailed around the world in a yacht, uh, has uh, trekked all over the place. It's just amazing. And so we'll have to compare notes and find out if he's been as many places as I've been. You know, I've been in a few too. But, you know, you don't... You can't compare. You can't compare. And you can't look at the neighbor next door or a friend and say, why didn't I have it as good as he did or she did at this point? Or why do I have it so much better than they do? This comparing back and forth, we've got to realize that, hey, God's in control, not us. So we ought not to waste our time trying to figure out and compare ourselves with others. And not to indulge. This is something that Solomon is very clear about. There's no room for the believer to indulge in retaliation, in resentment, in bitterness, or to just plain make ourselves disappear into some sort of contrived fantasy world. Whether it's using computers and games to do that, or whether it's just using fiction books or novels to do that, or whatever, don't seek escapism from life just because of its difficulties. 
This is the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Why is Solomon making these statements? I believe it's because he's tried all of, the, of these. He's been involved in this. While he was away from the Lord, these are part of the things he just indulged in rather than getting back to basics. And uh, it, it does not result in anything good. Reject the, re, uh, the following reactions. Get away from self-pity and despair. Put that aside. Begin to identify the advantage to your disadvantage. How many of you think you have a particular disadvantage? I'm not going to ask you to identify it this morning, but do you have a particular disadvantage that you're keenly aware of? Okay, a number of you. There are people with severe disadvantages. But the people that really succeed, and Solomon is, is talking about some of these things, the people that succeed are those who deal with their disadvantages by finding out how it gives them an advantage. And thank God. Be thankful to God for what you do have. When I talk about identifying your disadvantage, I want you to realize that the reason for that is that if you spend time identifying the advantages of your disadvantage, your joy of God's gifts will grow in proportion. This man up here is known as the Blade Runner because he runs on blades. At the age of 11 months, the doctors determined that he had no fibulas in his legs and amputated them. He is now a world-class runner and seeking to gain access to the next Olympics. And he runs with the highest class of runners and he beats them. Well, his disadvantage has turned to his advantage in some ways, right? So he's called Oscar Blade Runner Pistorius. Just last May, he met this little girl. This little girl at the age, I have it written down here, uh, she was a toddler, one and a half years old, developed meningitis. And because of her meningitis, she lost her arms and her feet. Her name is Ellie Mae Chalice. Her hero is Oscar, the Blade Runner. And this is a picture of them racing. She beat him every race <laughs> and doesn't let him forget it. But she tells everyone that uh, he is the one who gave her hope that she can have a normal life. You see, if we just identify our disadvantages and then identify how that disadvantage can be giving us an advantage, we can actually enjoy those disadvantages and thank God for them and learn how to live with them and have even a richer and better life than we ever had before. That's part of the message of Ecclesiastes. It's part of the message of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 especially. But it's going to be picked up again later in the book, again and again. And you say, but Solomon, he didn't have any disadvantage. Yes, he did. He had the disadvantage of being very rich and very powerful. 
and that disadvantage uh, caused him to go away from the Lord. And as a result, he had a very difficult life later. And uh, this is a book about his struggles. And he was trying to identify what his advantage was in that. And part of it was that God had gifted him for that to learn lessons. And one of the lessons was God had given him all that to learn how futile wealth and wisdom and power is apart from God. Okay? So it's a, a fantastic message that we just need to spend a little bit more time thinking about and understanding. Let's turn to chapter 4. Chapter 4 takes off from there. We have several times in this chapter that phrase, I looked. Notice there in verse 1, then I looked again. And then down in uh, verse 4, I have seen that every labor and every skill. Verse 7, then I looked again at vanity under the sun. In verse 15, I have seen all the living under the sun thronged to the side of the second lad who replaces him. Solomon is continuing his observations. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1 through 1020 are very, very similar to the book of Proverbs. There are large collections of Proverbs in here. In this chapter, there are a number of Proverbs that are cited. I believe this is one of the reasons why we can say that uh, the books have a common author. In chapter 4, it's easy to remember this, because chapter 4 has four distinct or major problems that Solomon looks at and deals with and uses his ob observations to try to find or seek a solution to these. The first problem is the existence of unrelieved oppression in verses 1 through 3. This kind of give us, gives us an outline of this chapter. The second is unsatisfied jealousy in verses 4 through 6. We refer to that also as envy. Some translations use rivalry. And unmitigated loneliness in verses 7 through 12. There's going to be a focus here on those who are isolated and lonely and without companionship. And the last is the uncertainty of political power and popularity. These are four issues that Solomon now is going to address and deal with. The four major problems all listed in chapter 4. As I said, he's an eyewitness. We already looked at those phrases in verses 1, 4, 7, and 15. He has seen them. I entitled this entire chap chapter two by two, not because the ark is in it anywhere, all right? Noah's not bringing the animals in the ark two by two. It's the idea that the number two occurs so frequently in this chapter. Eight times in this chapter, the number two is mentioned in a variety of ways, either as two or second or both, or even in a very unusual uh, translation, uh, as we'll see it later on down in verse 10, where another is actually referring to uh, a second, and also verse 8, where we have dependent in the New American Standard, uh, that is also the same word. It means two or the second. So eight times we have the number two. The number one occurs five times. It's implied one time in verse six where it says one hand. Literally, it only says a hand. The translation puts in one because it's obvious you have one hand and then you have two fists. And so it's one compared to two in that place. And then three is mentioned in verse 12 with that three ply or three strand cord. 
that is talked about as being strong. So numbers seem to be quite interesting and specific in this chapter. And uh, I don't know if it shows anything about uh, Solomon's math skills or not, but it does provide a common theme around which he composes this chapter. So let's begin with his observing oppression. There are four elements in verse 1 alone. Let's read verse 1. If you'll follow along, I'll read it there. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. First of all, the root word for oppress occurs three times in this verse. Nowhere else in the chapter, but three times in this verse. When something is stated three times in the scripture, it's the idea that there's emphasis. Like in, for example, Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. It means he is supremely holy. He's the holiest of all. So oppression mentioned three times in one verse is Solomon's means of focusing on this, emphasizing it, that he sees a severe problem with oppression in the world. And it shouldn't surprise us. We read about that also in chapter 3 because he talked about it also involving oppression and the difficulties that man faces, the troubles that men face. Behold, in the middle, and behold, I saw. That behold is a dramatic effect there to catch our attention. It's kind of like exclaiming, well, would you look at that? <laughs> it's emphatic. It makes it dramatic. The third thing is the tears that are mentioned. Tears. And uh, with it, comfort. Those highlight the emotional side of this issue and the situation that Solomon is examining. And the fourth thing is notice that it says twice, there's no one to comfort them. Two times in the same verse, no one to comfort them. That type of focus nemesis is significant for us. Now, I've already mentioned the root for oppressed three times in verse 1, but the rest of the book has it twice, this exact same word, in 5, 8, and 7, 7. But Solomon uses the same root five times outside the book of Ecclesiastes. He uses it in Psalm 72 as one of the places. Remember, that's one of the two psalms written by Solomon. And also, he used it four times in the book of Proverbs. Now, we all recognize that Solomon wrote those materials. Why is this even a point to bring up? Because there are some commentators that look at this and say, hey, this proves Solomon couldn't have written Ecclesiastes because he would have no experience with oppression. Besides, he was king. So if he's king and in control, then why doesn't he get rid of oppression? Right? Well, then, how do we know he wrote Psalm 72? How do we know he wrote the book of Proverbs? I mean, we get into this issue and we say, okay, if we have to remove concept of oppression from Solomon's vocabulary and experience here, then shouldn't we have to remove it elsewhere as well? And pretty soon we end up with nothing that Solomon wrote in the Word of God. The issue is not whether there's oppression in Israel under him during his reign so much as there is the issue of being oppression in the places he knows of around the world. Can you think of any other person in the ancient world 
who had the ability to gather knowledge the way he did. He had the world's greatest amount of wealth. He could send anyone anywhere at any time by any means to collect anything and bring it back to him. Whether there were apes from Africa, peacocks from India, these are mentioned specifically in the book of Kings, or spices from Sri Lanka or from other parts of Africa, he had the ability to do so. And he sent ships everywhere. He sent ships out laden with people and laden with goods and coming back with people and goods and coming back with stories and accounts and literature from other lands. <coughs> international politics. He was the leading international figure. The Queen of Sheba traveled from far away in Arabia to come see him in all of his glory because she had heard about his might, his power, his wealth, and his wisdom. He married over and over and over again in these political marriages that eventually drew him down. He married a princess from Egypt and he married women from all different lands. He learned of their customs, he learned their languages, he learned of their own literatures, he learned of those cultures from far away. He probably even himself traveled to some of those. He has all of this and then he has this immense God-given wisdom he has the ability to look at all these things. So the big question is, if he was so wise and if he had such power and had such experience around the known world, why wouldn't he know about oppression? Wouldn't it take a pretty dense individual to think there was no injustice and no oppression if he has that much wisdom and that much international knowledge? You see, to argue then that he couldn't have written the book of Solomon, or excuse me, the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, it really just sounds almost ridiculous to use this as argument, but there are many who use this. He knew oppressive rulers and oppressed subjects. Remember last week what we say about why was it he knew about injustice? Why did he know about injustice? What did we say last week? AJ? All right, he appointed, as all kings in Israel did, they appointed judges to take care of the smaller cases. And he was fully aware that some of them were unjust and some of them probably exercised oppression. Just because he mentions here's a problem does not mean he never did anything to try to resolve it. In fact, here we're told that no matter what you do to try to eliminate oppression and injustice, it's still there when you get through. It's still there. You can't eradicate it. We'll talk more about that later. He's going to come to that subject in later here in chapter 4 as well. Notice he has sympathy. He's emotionally involved in this. He notices, he notes the tears of the oppressed. He understands that. To me, that says a lot about the man. Now, let's ask a question. Why are oppressed people, then and now, why are they hopeless and helpless? Why? AJ? Sin. Taste sin? What else? Anyone else? They have no power. No power? Pardon? No one to help. No one to help? Can you think of another reason? Sure. I don't know where comfort. 
away, no comfort. Notice that twice in verse 1, no comfort. No comfort for them. Perhaps no comforter for them. Martha? Sometimes I have no Okay, and why? They do not know God. They do not know the Lord. They have no one powerful enough on their side or wise enough who understands and knows to resolve the issues. And when you're talking about them not knowing the Lord, where's their vision rising to? Only to the sun. In other words, they're just under the sun. They're on earth. They have no concept of life hereafter. No concept of eternity, right? Is that true? They have no concept of eternity? Yes. But they don't have a concept that one has hope. All right. They may know about eternity. Remember uh, chapter 3, verse 11? It says God set eternity in their hearts, right? They're seared. Okay, seared conscience. Also limited knowledge. And knowing about eternity, remember that... Solomon also told us there that that eternity is what they seek to understand but have difficulty in understanding because we can't understand it apart from the Lord. Okay, so the lack of help and hope is primarily due to a sinful condition, an inability to do it for oneself, and not knowing the God who can deliver. That's part of the issue here. Two times... In verse 1, there's no one to comfort them. No one to comfort them. Why is it that sometimes we are in situations where there is no way for another human being to comfort us? Okay, we need to depend on God. Okay, what else? Yes? They can sit there beside us, they can hold our hand, they can weep with us, but they may not be able to do anything about it. Sometimes they don't want to be comforted. Pardon? Sometimes they don't want to be comforted. Okay, sometimes people don't want to be comforted. They reject it. Because, uh, why? Who are you? Okay, who are you to, you don't know what I've gone through, right? Okay. <laughs> That's right, Job's three friends. And remember, they were comfortless. He says, you were sorry comforters. <laughs> All right, this sets a stage then for another discussion. This idea of being without a comforter, having no comfort, being without a helper, leads to the question, how alone are we? How alone are we? Acts 9.31 talks about the comfort that we have. We have the Holy Spirit as a comforter. He comforts us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. We have God the Father. Not only God the Holy Spirit as a comforter, but God the Father who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So what does that tell us now? 
three persons of the Godhead provide us comfort as believers. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Three. All three persons of the Godhead involved in providing us with comfort. The believer has that resource. The unbeliever does not have that resource. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. This is one of the reasons we have a difficulty in finding someone to share with us the comfort that we might need. They also, to provide us the right comfort, have to have shared the affliction, the suffering. Uh, that's why uh, I think the scriptures are so clear about the fact that uh, we are to weep with one another and we are to rejoice with one another. And why it's so clear here that sometimes we suffer because God wants to show us his comfort so that we can comfort others who've gone through the same thing. That's hard. When our daughter had uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, that was hard to go through. But it gave us the ability to comfort those who have daughters or mothers who have breast cancer. She has the cancer. Think of the problem that shows for her. But her testimony is that gave her the opportunity then to minister to young children, junior high age, that were in her husband's Christian camp up at uh, Forest Home who had cancer, a young boy who had cancer tumors in his eyes, had lost one eye, was going to lose the second within weeks of her meeting him. And a little girl who had cancer, and because the chemo had lost her hair, Tammy could go and sit with them. And she said it was amazing because, because they were suffering through that together, they were also to comfort one another. And she said they provided her with as much comfort and encouragement as she provided them, if not more. So why does God allow us to suffer sometimes? To allow us the privilege of experiencing his comfort and also the opportunity and privilege of sharing in the sufferings and comfort that others need. It's a great opportunity. Who would be there to do it if we didn't go through it? Yeah? Reminds me of uh, hearing John MacArthur, um, a lady in the neighborhood, I don't think she was a member of the church, she lost the baby, and he had learned by that time what you're just saying. Instead of him going out, he sent a woman in the church to it all. Amen. That's it. So when God allows us to suffer something, let's remember, it's an opportunity. That which we think is a disadvantage, remember we just talked about that in chapter 3. The suffering, which is our disadvantage, becomes an advantage in ministry to others. Every one of you in here have been through some very difficult situations in your life. And each one of you, perhaps a very different type of difficulty. And some of you are still facing those difficulties even today. 
and there's the pain of it it's still there one of the things you can be praying about is that God would help you be able to take that pain and suffering and use it in some way to comfort those who are experiencing the exact same thing because he's granted you an understanding of that by going through it it's hard but it is also an opportunity in this chapter we have a number of better than proverbs it's kind of interesting as we go through uh, you look down and you see in uh, verse 6 one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and you go down further and you see all of these others down in verse 9 two are better than one and all the way through this section we have these better than proverbs it's interesting the better than proverbs or axioms occur 23 times in ecclesiastes and 24 times in the book of proverbs one more evidence of the common authorship of these two books and they're primarily in the second in the central section of the book of proverbs Leupold says this about this issue when it says here that uh, it's better than one, uh, it's better to be dead. For example, in verse 2, so I congratulate the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Uh, and we have to ask the question well, how is that better? How is that better? Well, first of all, some take that and look at it and say, see, Solomon is a cynic. He's a skeptic. He's a pessimist. This is human wisdom, not divinely given wisdom. They argue against the book. I told you when we first started the series, I had a seminary professor who said that there was no theological value in this book whatsoever. That was written by a pessimist, a skeptic, and that it had no value. But you see, the point of Solomon is that if our view rises only to the sun and our view is limited to this earth, what other choice is there? Right? So H.C. Leupold, the old Lutheran expositor, said, the only permissible estimate that can be put upon earthly values apart from the heavenly is just that. It's better to be dead. It's better than to even exist it. That's when you have a perspective that's limited to just this life. Why is there a, such a huge rate of suicides today? Because of people having a perspective that's limited to this life. Franz Dalich, long ago, wrote, So long as the central point of man's existence lies in the present life, and this is not viewed as the forecourt of eternity, there's no enduring consolation to lift us above the miseries of this present world. But Solomon has already made it clear that there is something more. In chapter 3, verse 11, he said eternity in man's hearts. He's already talked in later in chapter 3 about the fact that in the future, God is going to bring justice. He is the judge, and he will make that happen. And we've already discussed this idea of Solomonic authorship, so I won't need to go over that again. But... Uh, we need to understand here that all the way through these three verses on oppression, 
it's very clear that oppression is condemned. Oppression and abuse of power is condemned. And Solomon clearly understands that applies to him as well as to any other king. Look at how scripture speaks of it. And I have a reason for saying this. We'll get to it here in a minute. Uh, an application I want us to make. Exodus 22, 21. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. You see, scripture not only condemns oppression, but it also gives a specific command to God's people, Old and New Testament, that we are to be involved in lifting oppression and bringing justice. You say, but how, what's, what good is that if we can never solve it permanently? Well, we'll get to that question. But remember here, remember the suffering? You suffered, you were oppressed in Egypt. You understand, therefore you ought to have a heart for those who suffer. Leviticus 19, 13, in a context where we have that beautiful statement, love your neighbor as yourself, that Jesus said is the second greatest commandment. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Notice that the oppression has to do with every area of life, even an employee-employee relationship, not just kings over serfs. Deuteronomy 16, verse 19 says, You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue. Notice that? We must pursue it. Glenn Beck's in the news right now because he made an unwise statement, if you've heard about it on Fox News and his program, where he said that any Christian or any person who's in a church that has anywhere in their writings that they are uh, seeking to relieve injustice and the ills of society ought to leave that church because he says that uh, that's demonstrating you have a communist agenda or socialist agenda. And this has got Christians very rightly upset. We understand that there's such things as liberal theologies that are liberation theology that talk only about social change and never talk about spiritual change, and that is wrong. But as believers who do believe in spiritual change, we do have an obligation to be involved in some amount of social change as well. God says, pursue justice. You see, bring justice to those who are treated unjustly, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God has given you. He's telling Israel, if you don't pursue justice for the oppressed, I'm going to take your land away from you. You don't deserve to live in it. And that's why they were finally removed from the land, is because they did not do that. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to what? Do justice. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is speaking. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and not neglected the tithe. Well, before I get to that, that's almost anticlimactic to get to that in a hurry. And our time is getting close here, and I'll just get started on that before I have to quit. The reason I'm stopping and spending so much time on this one point 
and it's only the first three verses of chapter four, is partly because of this issue that arose before in Beck. Because it's a national issue. But also because I think that sometimes you and I can get to the point where we get so jaded by efforts to try to bring justice and try to solve some of the ills of society because we find out that it can't be solved unless there's a change in the heart. So our first task is like Bob Stevens was saying about this third hour class he's going to be starting soon on evangelism. How do we relieve injustice in the world and society's ills? Well, we've got to begin one person at a time. And part of that is in evangelism. If you solve the heart problem, you can solve many other problems. Begin there. Does it stop there? No. You and I need to be actively involved. We have people in our church who are jobless right now, who have no jobs, who have difficulty finding jobs. Is it our responsibility as a church to help them as we can? Yes. We have people who are suffering from injustice in our congregation, who are facing uh, acts against them that uh, have caused them great problems and great distress. Uh, we have several women in our church whose husbands have abandoned them who have uh, gone off on their own to do other things, it's our responsibility to help those women. Uh, we have all kinds of situations we can talk about. We know about the situations overseas in mission uh, stations and different uh, countries where there are issues and problems, and we ought to be involved in some way in helping in those. Uh, it's our obligation to pursue that which is right, to pursue justice, to pursue uh, the uh, a concept of, of removing oppression whenever possible. Do you have a neighbor who is suffering from an oppressive spouse or an oppressive landlord or from an oppressive uh, uh, employer? Have you provided any encouragement to them? Are you letting them know you're praying for a resolution? Are you letting them know that you're willing to help out in some way to get resolution? That's part of what the Christian life is all about. We are a community. This builds to the very next point we're going to be getting to here because it moves into then why don't we get involved as we are? You know, sometimes you say, oh, well, since I'm a Christian and since you can't really change sinful, fallen mankind, I'm not even going to bother to vote and not get involved in politics because, after all, what can be done? You can't do anything. What they really need is the gospel. But what we're saying then is who cares what our neighbors have to live under as far as a government and the abuse of government or the corruption of government? Who cares? Let them suffer. It's saying we really don't have a care or concern for fellow human beings. So we're not showing justice or mercy that God is demanding of us. We need to be involved in our communities. Those crisis pregnancy centers, one of the ministries of this church we're involved in, it's one that we ought to be involved in. It's one of those things we ought to do. Is it all we're involved in? No. Is it the ultimate and first focus? Not necessarily, but it ought to be there. Right? That's what we're 
looking at and seeing here. And the reason I bring that up is because we just sometimes just ignore it and say it's not the important thing. It really is important. And that's what Solomon is bringing up. Let me just quickly run with you here and then we'll close with what's going to happen the rest of this chapter as we come to it next week. He's going to say, okay, you heard about this oppression. You want to know why the oppression's there? Envy and jealousy and greed. Envy, jealousy, and greed. Are we subject to that? Oh, yes. We are. And sometimes we get so upset about the corporate problem or the community problem, we forget about our individual problem that helps to contribute to that. Why is it our medical situation is in such bad shape today, besides the fact Congress won't take and, and be active about resolving the problem with the laws of this land? It's because we have a lot of greedy people who say, because a doctor made a mistake on me, and sure, it's only a couple thousand dollars or whatever, but I'm going to sue him for millions. Greed. We are an avaricious society. And all this litigation is hurting everyone. People who have been treated unjustly deserve what is right. But they should not be given far, far, far more than what is right. Because when that's done, it hurts the rest of us. It hurts everyone. It's all connected, but it begins with me and it begins with you. Our envy, our greed. When we're envious and greedy, what happens in our lives? We isolate ourselves from others. We can even lose the members of our own family because we're so intent upon getting ahead and being successful and getting to the next rung of the corporate ladder that we leave them behind and we destroy our families and we destroy and leave behind our friends. That's involved here in companionship. And when he gets to the end of the chapter, he wraps it all up and he said, now that you understand how it works from the bottom up, let's talk, talk about the top. Let's talk about politics. Let's talk about the king. Let's talk about rulers. And you'll see the effect here. It all begins here. It's going to come full cycle. And this next section of lessons, next Sunday as we go through it here, is going to be to see how you and I are involved in that. All right? And what we can do about it for ourselves, first of all, and then for those around us. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you've given to us. And Lord, this morning we've really focused on especially these three verses. But help us to realize that the remainder of this chapter has a lot to do with the existence of oppression and injustice. Help us to look at ourselves and examine ourselves. And help us to understand how that we need to display justice and mercy and compassion to others. And Lord, help us not to focus upon our situations to the exclusion of others, but to take a good close look at how we can take the things we've suffered and use it positively to help others who have suffered. Lord, help us this week to be consistent in our faith and to be those to whom others will look to because they see a hope in us, a hope they want to have, and may we then tell them about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we give you this praise and then give you this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. Have a great week.